Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for October 27, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have you all on. Here in about 20 minutes, we're going to talk Kentucky politics with our longtime Kentucky politics expert, Matt Wyatt. He'll come on and kind of tell us um, what's going on in that race. We've gotten polls recently that conflict, and hopefully he can set us straight. Uh, but until then, we've got a lot of topics to talk about. We're going to start off in Georgia. You know, you know we're based out of Georgia, and we don't always talk about Georgia, not nearly as much as we used to, but, but two big topics this week, and so we're going to discuss those. Uh, the first topic, they announced uh, a few weeks ago that the, twi- the, the November debate, um, I believe this candidate, this debate, you have to have like 6% in the polls, and I don't know how many donors and how much money raised, but it, it moves the bar up. Um, it's going to be held in, it, in Georgia, they first said, then they said Atlanta, and then finally they announced that it would be at Tyler Perry's new studio um, in Atlanta. Now, Catherine, you haven't been to the new studio, but you've been to the one before. Kind of tell us about uh, why they may have picked that venue. Well, I went to I saw uh, President Obama in 2012 at the other Tyler Perry studio, which is in Southwest Atlanta. I don't I don't know if that's still even functioning, but um, it was really quite um, it was quite convenient. Uh, you know, it wasn't a lot of parking hassles and. Um, it was pretty easy to get to. Um, I mean, there was a lot of traffic because there was just a lot of people going to it. But it was a huge space. And, and now it was standing room only. I mean, there were no seats or anything. But um, I'm sure that this new studio is, you know, bigger and brighter and better than um, that old um, space. So I'm sure they've got a good space for the um, for the debate and a good layout and all that. And, I, and I'm happy that we get that you know it'll shine some light on his new property. I think it's, it's good for everybody. Good for Atlanta. Good for Tyler Perry. Yeah, um, and T- Tim, I, I think it is a, an interesting choice. Obviously, it'll be new, so it'll be good in quality. One would think it's brand new. Uh, second, it's probably very easy to control. And security is a factor, um, but sound stages, you know, I've driven by the one uh, in Fayette County, Pinewood, multiple times, and, and it didn't like one you just stop in and visit. Um, there, there's guard shacks at all entrances. So it's going to be secured, so that's another plus. But um, I, I wanted to tell you who I think's the winner out of this, or one of the winners, and it's an unusual one. Um, the film industry in Georgia was kind of put into peril and, and could still lose some jobs. Uh, because of the bill that uh, the Republicans and, and Brian Kemp signed into law in the last uh, legislative session, 
And there was a lot of talk that, you know, would the film industry kind of uh, move away from Georgia? Stacey Abrams, uh, you know, actually said, you know, film industry don't do that and had some sway. And so it looks like there's been a reprieve. Um, now Tyler Perry's built this mammoth studio, and you have to think if they build it, you will come, and that means projects will come. But also the Democratic Party, who is by nature political, came to the studio. Um, so therefore, Tim, do you think that this actually kind of helps with the film industry and therefore by default kind of takes some pressure that would have been there off of Brian Kemp and the Republicans? Well, perhaps it, it doesn't hurt. Of course, I, I'm pretty sure we know Tyler Perry's <laughs> politics, but, but you know, it, it is a studio. Um, and, and, and one good thing about it being in a studio, and I'm sure Catherine knew this having gone to one to see President Obama, is they probably won't have to do a whole lot of prep work to get it ready for for television, as they would say, I don't know, uh, the municipal auditorium downtown, something like that. So it'll be it'll be a better place probably to have it. But I'm still wondering about the seating. I, I'm sure that was taken into account, and they feel comfortable that they can put as many people in there as they as they need to or want to. The question I have is, though, uh, how many people will that be, and does anyone know? What do either one of y'all have any idea at all about it? Zero clue, because I guess the soundstage may not even been picked, and not all of them are different sizes. One would think they would pick one of the bigger ones, um, but of course well, you could give me the square footage of a soundstage, that's and a I would have no clue place. how that what that it, translates it, it, to. The, It's a big place, and the reason I know that, I believe that's the old Fort McPherson, right? Yeah, it is. My uncle was was stationed there for many years. He was a lifer in in the Army, and 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 that's a pretty good-sized place uh, over in East Point, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I don't know. you You don't know what? I don't know how big the space is. Um, I, they've started talking about distribution of tickets and, um, we're talking low numbers to some of Uh the, um, to some of the like, uh, affiliated organizations, but I believe that was to be adjusted once they determined the exact location. So I don't know what that means, but, you know, I mean, they don't, there weren't that many people at the. At the last debate, was it the last one? You know, they don't have to have that many people. They can. They don't hardly even show the audience. Yeah, no. it's a TV show. I, did I mean, hear you're, that you're it's trying to get women, a good. Look at them. I did hear it's all women moderators. It's going to be Andrea right. Mitchell, uh, Rachel, Rachel Maddow, Maddow, and I can't remember who the third one is. Are the oh, number of okay. tickets determined by the National Committee, by the request from the campaigns, uh, by the state party, sure, or, or do we know? I'm sure it's all just, you know, I'm sure there's like 
you know, so-and-so gets so many percent, so-and-so gets so many percent. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know, I don't know what those calculations are, but I, and I don't know that that's a fact, but that's what I'm assuming is that, you know, the DNC says, well, we need this many tickets and the state party gets this many tickets and either they distribute to the, um, campaigns through those, um, avenues or the campaigns get them off the top or something. I mean, I'm sure it's very, um, a very complicated negotiation. (laughs) (laughs) I bet it is. (laughs) And And the more tickets you have, the less complicated it becomes. So therefore it probably would behoove them to pick the biggest soundstage, assuming all would, you know, look equally good on TV and have the right acoustics. Uh, I'm sure they'll all have great lighting, um, but for a debate, the acoustics will be a bit different than would be for a television or movie shoot. Um, well, now let's move on to another topic um, that, that is at this point speculation. It was reported in the AJC early in this week, I believe by Greg Bluestein, that um, Supreme Court Chief Justice um, Harold Melton has contacted Governor Kemp and said, I'm interested. Apparently he didn't just in the middle of the night, you know, just go onto the internet and just thought the application we've heard so much about. He, of course, I guess, wanted before he did that, wanted to find out um, how it would be received, which I'm sure a lot of the more insider folks would do before they would just fill out the application on the internet. Um, but he was appointed by Sonny Perdue, who's currently the agriculture secretary, and um, and is now the chief justice. And, of course, if he were to be picked, and it's a total if, just besides the political implications of could he win, what would he do for his ticket, he would also create an opening on the state Supreme Court. So it would kind of be a twofer pick for Brian Kemp. He'd get to pick him as the uh, pick to be the nominee or serve out uh, the last year of Senator Isaacson's term, and then he would get to replace him on the state Supreme Court. And typically those folks don't lose when they get appointed on the election. They they serve for as long as they choose to, uh, by and large. I'm sure somebody somewhere got defeated way back when, but there ain't many of them. Um, Tim, what's your take on if this will happen? If, if it were to happen, what would it mean? Well, we know he's apparently weighing a bid, but he has not yet submitted a resume. That being said, he would be a very good choice. Um, as I mentioned before we came on the air, so too would Jan Jones, somebody like that, only not as good a choice as Justice Melton would be. He would check off a lot of boxes uh, for for Republicans. Um, um, but a lot of people, you know, uh, are, are still hoping that Kemp picks a Trump loyalist. There, there is that crowd that wants that. Uh, the, the, the probably leading candidate amongst that group would have to be Doug Collins. But uh, the, the Republicans really want an inroad into minorities and female voters because they're just too big of a growing block. Now, we got to remember now that that, that under the uh, newest 
um, things we have available to look at. That something like 32.2%, I believe, of the total population of this state is African-American. Uh, that is a block that just cannot be ignored by either party anymore. I, I think I think he would be a, a, a fantastic pick for them. Well, Catherine, I'm going to flip it to you, and you can also join in with your thoughts. But this is a gentleman who has the uh, Supreme Court uh, Chief Justiceship, uh, an office with an incredible amount of power, an office that you're probably not going to lose. You know, U.S. senators have been knocked off. Um, you know, Supreme Court justices very rarely. So he could serve, he's, I think, 50. He could serve for as many terms as he wanted to if he got tired of it. Um, there would probably be a bidding war between um, Georgia State, UGA, Emory, and everybody else with the law school and the state to, to give him an incredibly um, cushy emeritus uh, professorship when he got tired of being on the court. Um, why would he risk it all to want to do this? Well, you know, I mean, why does anyone risk what they're doing to to seek higher – more powerful, more visible office. I mean, I, there's, a, I'm sure, a host of reasons. Um, he may feel like this is a opportunity for him to serve in a, in a more, in a way that has more impact on the things that are important to him. Um, I personally think that for the for the GOP to pick him is a risk for reelection. Mainly because he's black and he, and he will be running as a Republican, and I just I think we have you know a lot of racial problems, especially in the GOP in Georgia. I'm not sure that he could get elected. Number one, and I also think that Jan Jones picks up a lot of boxes too. Um, you know they have a they have a problem with women voters, especially in the suburbs, and if they were to name Jan Jones, I think she would have a better chance of winning re-election. And um, her, I mean, I, 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 they're both very conservative. And so I don't want either of them. But I think, uh, I think Jan Jones is a wiser, uh, more strategic selection. Well, I, I mean, you say that, and I, I kind of know what you're saying. If maybe in a primary he might be vulnerable, I don't think in a general um, being African-American would hurt him, um, but, but in a primary possibly. But then Tim Scott is far more popular at this point than Lindsey Graham in South Carolina, and, and one would think that Georgia – is either equally or possibly more progressive than South Carolina. So with Tim Scott being such a, a really a solid – I listened to Tim Alberta, or part of his book about the GOP in the past how many over years, and he talks in depth about Tim Scott running for Congress then being appointed by Nikki Haley and, and what a really you know, masterstroke that was for the South Carolina GOP. Um, why, Catherine, do you think that – uh, Harold Melton would have more trouble than Tim Scott's had. Uh, I, I, it's just my sense comparing the two. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, between Jan Jones and Melton. Okay. I, I mean, I don't um, have any. I don't have any. I don't have any data to back it up. It's just my sense. 
which is often wrong. So. Yeah, no, and we all at times use gut because sometimes we don't have anything else to use, and sometimes polls are not perfect, and we um, have to resort to that. Most yeah. of the time. Um, <laughs> enough of the time, and we'll talk about that enough in a few minutes, uh, polls that, that dispute, dispute each other. Um, well, Tim, let, let's, uh, you know, Catherine's made a point that she thinks Jan Jones would be better and than um, Harold Melton, and, and possibly because of – uh, you know, GOP voters and their is- issues with race, are Georgia Republicans, you know, less um, progressive than Tim Scott? Or is Tim Scott just a better politician, maybe? No, probably what you got going on over there, you were talking about him being more popular than Lindsey Graham. I, that's probably <laughs> more on Lindsey Graham yeah, than it is on Tim Scott. You You don't hear a lot out of Senator Scott, you certainly don't hear uh, the, the wildly controversial stuff that Lindsey Graham has to say. Uh, now, of course, that'll that'll draw the Trump voters to Lindsey Graham and assure his, you know, reelections as as time goes on. But but still, uh, I, I I can certainly see why. Uh, Senator Scott is more popular than Lindsey Graham is. I think that's Lindsey Graham's mm. fault. And no, I, I do not think uh, South Carolina Republicans uh, are, are more progressive than Georgia Republicans at all. They've got to be even more conservative than Georgia Republicans yeah. are. Uh, or I think they are. So yeah, I, I, I think I, I think, think that's so what that is. Yeah, I would think so too. I will say this about Tim Scott: every time you see Tim Scott on TV in a picture, he's smiling. He looks like a happy warrior. He doesn't, you know, carry that angry all the time face of the GOP like, say, a Ted uh-huh. Cruz does, or Donald Trump, who apparently thinks looking dour is a power move. Um, and so I think that actually works for him. And I think a lot of people outside of politics even need to understand that. People like smiles. You know, you just seem happy and pleasant and life's too short to be grumpy. Um, but that's a whole other psychological podcast that we don't run and not just a political <laughs> one. Um, but, but I'll tell you this. I really – I do think that this would be a, a really smart move for, um, you know, Brian Kemp. He would have then Harold Melton run on this ticket with – you know, David Perdue, Mike could soften David Perdue's image a bit um, since he's gone full MAGA, uh, more so than a Doug Collins could. And then, probably more importantly for Brian Kemp, in 2022, he's going to be on the ballot. And if he faces uh, a candidate of color, uh, people kind of have a, a person in mind, would that help him even just a little bit? Maybe not so much with getting African Americans to uh, voters. To vote for him because he appointed Harold Melton, that's probably a little bit of a stretch. But would it help him with maybe some some whites that are maybe a little bit uh, unhappy with how the Republican Party looks on race? And this would soften that. We'll have to put a pin on that answer and answer it another time because we're going to move up north two states and welcome in Matt White to talk about Kentucky politics. Welcome back, Matt. Hey, how's it going? Oh, going good. Well, um, 
Good. We know you've got one of the three big gubernatorial elections uh, coming up in just a week or two, um, and maybe, mm-hmm. and I think in some ways the most watched of the three. But we've had dueling polls in the past um, few weeks. We saw one that had the race 46-46-46 mm-hmm. uh, tied, which people read mm-hmm. as a good sign for incumbent governor Matt Bevin. And then we've had another mm-hmm. poll just this past week that showed uh, Bashir up, Andy Bashir up 17 points. Make sense of those two polls for us. Well, it's methodology, and in one of these off-year, off-year elections, it's really hard to gauge turnout. So oftentimes these polls that, whether it's Mason-Dixon or whether it's some of these other outfits, uh, are really off in their predictions, especially the last few cycles um, in these gubernatorial races in Kentucky. And, uh, you know, I've always said that the edge slightly is to the incumbent governor, um, it, because he's running a whole campaign on uh, social conservatism. And, you know, our economy's not doing horrible here right now, so there's nothing to get people that motivated to come out to vote against him except for the teacher issues, uh, the pension issues. Um, but, you know, surprisingly, you know, we have pockets uh, in Jefferson County, which is Louisville and some other areas where – People are still a little bit riled up about it, but out in the state, I just don't feel – and it's really shocked me. I just haven't felt um, the large education – educator push uh, to get Bevan out. Mm-hmm. Bevan is the absolute worst governor of my lifetime on education issues. I mean just horrific governor. Uh, but you know, some of these social conservative issues – even get some of these teachers back in line uh, to vote that way. So it, it's uh, – I still give the edge slightly. Uh, Bevin should be beaten. He's, he's the least popular governor in America in poll after poll after poll. But you need to have a nominee, uh, a Democratic nominee, who aggressively goes after this guy um, and doesn't let up. And that's that's what I think has kind of happened. I think that that Andy Bashir came out out of the primary. He's the Democratic, Democratic nominee, um, and he had a double-digit lead. And I think you know you let your foot off the neck of somebody, and um, and you let them define the race. That's a problem, and I, I think that's that's happened. And I think only now do they realize, hey, this is really tightened up, uh, because I don't think Bashir. I, I know Bashir's numbers do not show us anywhere near a 17-point lead. So uh, I don't know where the 17-point lead is coming from. I think that's way off. Um, I think this is a jump ball, um, but I think that there's a slight edge uh, to to Governor Bevan, unfortunately, because if anybody deserves to be defeated for their term in office, it would be Governor, Governor Bevan, who has insulted literally just about every single person in Kentucky. Um, so, um, it's a, it's a, it's a race that we should win because, uh, we had the momentum. We're running against a guy who just continues to shoot himself in the foot. Can't get out of his own way, but you have to run a good race to win, especially in a state like Kentucky. Yes. Well, you, you kind of you brought up a question. You brought up one question I had, and then you brought up something else that maybe have another question. I'm going to ask that one first. Uh, you said that Kentucky's economy is fairly good right now, 
And, um, you know, and that's what we're seeing in, in some of the national numbers. But we hear articles also that say it's good in cities, not in rural areas. And we know Kentucky mm-hmm. has Louisville, has Lexington, has Georgetown, which is a large suburb of Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm sure the economy's good in those places, but if we went into those coal counties up in, you know, Harlan, Kentucky, and other counties in uh, mm-hmm. the eastern mountainous parts of Kentucky, is the economy good there? The economy hasn't been good there for, you know, 40 years, quite frankly, and it's been slowly getting worse and worse and worse. It, has it gotten worse over the last four years? Uh, you know, I don't think it, those folks blame Governor Bevan for definitely for the for the coal mining jobs that have been lost. They've had a small uptick um, when President Trump came into office of coal jobs, not really reversing themselves, but rather stabilizing. So it's not. Um, and, and, and for those those voters, you know, it's it, they judge things on. On on culture on, and how you view them. A lot of times, people in my party um, talk about coal in a way. Uh, it's just like people talk about tobacco in a way. It's you know, you may know that tobacco is a bad thing. You may know that smoking is a bad thing, but but how how Democrats talk about tobacco, it's it's like an insult to those that raise tobacco, <laughs> and and like you don't like them. You know, and, and I think the Democrats, we don't like coal-fired uh, plants, and so the way we talk about that issue is very insulting to them personally, and they're not going to hold a Republican senator or governor responsible for losing coal jobs when the other side is you know, saying bad things about their, their profession. So um, th- those counties – uh, now, now he is not popular in Eastern Kentucky for a whole host of other reasons. Uh, and in the prime, in the Republican primary, he did poorest in Eastern Kentucky. Had nothing to do with coal jobs. Uh, so he was running against someone in the Republican primary that was from Eastern Kentucky, um, and and he just lost a lot of those counties. So the coal issue doesn't really hurt Bevin. Bevin's popularity in Eastern Kentucky. Hurts him more than that, but it's not coal. Um, but but yeah, it, it, the unemployment rate in those areas. But it's it's not uh, it, our unemployment rate is, is lower than the national unemployment rate. Um, the problems that we have out in rural areas have been systemic and long term. Nothing that's happened over the last four years that, that anyone would blame Governor Bevin for per se. Um, so. You know, I think I think the real damage is going to be the Medicaid reversal out in the state, and it's not just for people not, you know, because we we signed up more people for Medicaid and expanded Medicaid more than any state in the country, and increased our uh, the, the number of, of insureds, but more than anybody in the country, and reversing those the Medicaid expansion is going to hurt rural hospitals and her and rural providers. That's something that's just like not really been felt yet, but in the next four years will be felt if he's reelected. That would have a, a more of a devastating impact to his popularity and, and the Republican brand, I think, out there. Um, but it's just not felt right now. Yes. Well, you um, you touched on teachers, and not really so much teachers, but maybe education voters. Um, mm-hmm. We talked about it in the past last time you were on. There was a there's a teacher. Who um, was mad at um, the Republicans 
and ran in the Republican primary, uh, was very conservative mm-hmm. on you know hot button issues like you know guns and abortion, mm-hmm. but stood squarely against uh, Kentucky Republicans and Governor Bevin on education. He ran and he defeated a very powerful state senate incumbent. Um, mm-hmm. Are those voters the kind of voters that switched from that incumbent to this challenger teacher? Um, in the Republican Party, just because they didn't like where the Republicans were going on education, are those the kind of voters that are key to this, really, all the races up and down the ballot in Kentucky? I mean, you know, that race you're, you're talking about in particular was a shock to me and it's a shock to a lot of people. But, you know, that was a, that's a Republican area. So it's like a lot of those areas that were almost all Democratic areas for a while. It's a, Repu- a vast majority Republican district. So if you were going to win that district, it's going to be Republican. All the teachers in that area basically are – most of them are, are Republican uh, registered. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a low voter turnout in a lot of these counties – you know, we're talking about 15% or less turnout. Yeah, you can get a lot of upsets. And so they, you know, they got yeah. a lot of those teachers that were Republicans out there to vote, and they upset him. Um, when you think of it that way, you know, and it was right in the middle of the, of the teacher, uh, you know, the the protests and all that. It was really a hot topic um, at the time. And yeah, we look at look back at it that way. Eh, it's a Republican district. All the teachers are Republican in that area, <laughs> so um, you know I just I just think that um, that it does matter. I just think that you know it, it, it a close race and a really close race. The education voter is in Kentucky uh, can matter. Um, in Kentucky, do, how many voters are educated education voters only? You know that that's the key. And there, there aren't that many, quite frankly. Um, and that's, you know, that's a concern. Um, you know, and and when you go out and you talk to people that are even Democrats, and you talk about the pension issue, what you hear from a lot of voters, unless they're in the teachers' union, you know, or unless they're, you know, real partisan Democrats, but those that would tilt Democrat and register Democrat, who don't generally like Bevin. Would say, well, you know, at least he's trying to do something on the issue, um, and you know, I don't have a pension. <laughs> you know, teachers have an enormous, have a great pension. I don't have a pension, so at least he's trying to do something. And if we could solve the pension issue, then we could have better roads. We could have better, you know, but, you know, because education is such a huge chunk of that and Medicaid that takes up, I think, about eighty percent of our budget in Kentucky. Not necessarily eighty; it's almost eighty. It's, it's a large number. So um, that's how the regular voter sees it. That are that are not just strictly education education voters, and is that at least the governor? We don't agree with how he says things. We don't agree with how he does things. He insults people. He's mean, and I think that's the but it gets him more than anything with people is. They don't mind. They, we like a strong governor in Kentucky. We like a very strong governor, and that takes action. Uh, but they don't like mean. <laughs> and Governor Bevin mm-hmm. has hurt himself so much continuously. He's just, just mean spirit, and he think he says things that are just, some just strike people as ridiculous. You know, so um, that hurts him. But the effort to fix the pension system, which people know he didn't create. Um, that a can that's been kicked down the road for years. Everybody 
everybody knows that. Now, when you I'm on a school board, so when you look at the numbers and you see the numbers that the governor brings out, he's manufactured these numbers. He is he is is taking a, an accounting principle that has intentionally made the numbers almost double than what it is mm-hmm. um, to cause even more. It was a crisis to cause even more of a crisis um, because the the idea was make it such a damn big crisis and convince everyone that it is that we have to take such drastic action to cut pensions completely and, and move to you know a 403b type system and. Um, and, and, and totally do away with, with public employee pensions. That's that's the tactic, you know, for the strategy of doing away with pensions. So it is a it is a huge problem. He has manufactured the number, and that's something that Democrats we don't even t- I mean we don't even talk about. And I don't I don't I really don't understand that. And uh, well, relying on the education. My problem is too is like I think Andy Bashir is relying on these education voters out there, and his message, his TV ads have been directly to teachers, and which could be would be fine for an ad, but you know the vast majority of people here are not teachers, <laughs> and quite frankly, they're maybe a little resentful on the pensions that they do get. As wrong as that may sound to a lot of people on my side, talk to voters. Whole focus groups, listen to what they say, and that's what they'll tell you. Yeah. Well, let me go ahead and pass it over to Catherine, then Tim, for more questions. Catherine? Mm-hmm. Hey, thanks for being on tonight, Matt. It's great to hear from hey, you. Hey, no again. problem. Yeah. Um, I always like to hear how things are going in the Democratic Party in any given state. So, how is your party structure, and do you think they're going to be able to help pull, uh, you know, pull this? Governor election to our side, or are they not very effective? Yeah, I mean, I think we're more effective now than we were four years ago. Absolutely, because we have a, a gubernatorial candidate that under, you know understands that you gotta like at least get out there and build some kind of organization. The problem that we have, we've got a great chairperson, great you know executive director, all that stuff. The problem that we have though is. You know, we don't have any power in Kentucky. We don't have a governor's uh, office. We don't have mm-hmm. the, the House or the Senate. And, you know, we we have not built up an, a small donor uh, network here in Kentucky like they have in other states because we, we had the governorship for so damn long. And when you have the governorship and the House, you know, all the road contractors, everybody that does business with Kentucky, you know, have an interest in helping out the party that's in power. And that's quite frankly the the fact of it is. And when you have no power in Kentucky, uh, and you have no small donor network to speak of, um, you know, there just ain't enough rich folks to get the Democratic Party, you know, to keep your lights on, much less build an actual infrastructure and organization. So then it's then you rely on the campaign to do it, and you know they're not, they, you know, it's hard to go from zero to hundred. You know, after a primary to build the kind of infrastructure you need for a general election, um, so they're doing the best they can. It's just, you know, yeah, we, I, we, have we don't same, have the money. Yeah, we face that same problem, and here in Georgia, we do have a pretty vibrant small donor program, and it really does help. But it's hard to get things going after if you've had that governorship and uh, state legislature for a long time. It just takes. Right, and you, you have African American voters, and you have African American voters in your state. We don't. Yes, I mean, we, we just don't. don't. Yeah, 
Yeah, you do. I mean, so that is a good base of support uh, that a lot of these states, Georgia, South Carolina, Florida, you know, Alabama, and, you know, you, you know, even Mississippi, you've got – in North Carolina, you've got a level of support that – that you could energize and mobilize and talk to and 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 could be there for you in a place like Kentucky, you know, it's it, it's not. I worked in in Pennsylvania before. It's kind of like that in that you have two kind of blue dots <laughs> in the state and the rest right. of the state's red. Difference with Kentucky is those two little blue dots aren't big enough. Just just not big enough, <laughs> and we don't have enough um, supporters. And um, that that are going to be there for us. Um, so you you so really it, what we're, in a state what, like it, what you're what we're counting on this year is for everyone to hate your governor so much that they'll vote for the Democrat. Yeah, and my my <laughs> problem with with our strategy with that is you, that's not enough. <laughs> that is not enough, man. Um, and and people don't like Bevin. People are going to go in there and they're going to vote for Bevin, and they don't like the guy. They hate the guy, but they'll vote for him because our Democratic candidate hasn't given them the the real, you know. Yeah, option. it needs to be more than Except I just don't is. like this guy. Yeah, it's got to be more than that. Right. Well, right. I'm going to have to be more than him that. for his questions. Thanks very much, and. Good no luck. Problem. We're all thinking about you. Yeah. Well, it'll be great. Good evening, election Matt. Night How are you? Off. Hello. Doing great. Um, seemed like back in, oh, I don't know, July, August, that the Bevin campaign was languishing. You made some allusion uh, to mm-hmm. that. And about that time, he seemed to change strategy and go in, I mean, all in for Donald Trump. Is that what mm-hmm. turned his campaign around? No, I don't think so. I think what's turned his campaign around, I mean, he was he's always a Donald Trump, massive Donald Trump supporter, and Donald Trump's going to be here the night before the election at Rupp mm-hmm. Arena in Lexington. Mm-hmm. So, But he's, he's always 110% Donald Trump, but his personality Pretty similar. If there's any governor in this country that, that reminds me about Donald Trump, it's this guy. Um, it, but uh, that really didn't turn it around. What turned it around is that he has run a more disciplined campaign, in my opinion. It, it, he he's not a disciplined candidate. Let's say I'm not I'm not trying to say he actually is because he says things so off off color that gets him in trouble. But he stayed on a message that um, that has been social conservative leaning. The whole time, mm-hmm. and he's really framed this race as, as, you know, one one person is for killing babies. I mean, that's the language that he uses, um, and he is not for killing babies. And by doing that and just saying it over and over and over again, he's it, we're operating out of that frame. Mm-hmm. And in A.D. Bashir, the problem with the Bashir candidacy too. Is that you know? Not only does he not counter that with anything, he just doesn't say anything because he doesn't want to. Because he, we're operating from the idea that all these you know we have some pro-life voters that don't like Bevin, which is true, but because they don't like Bevin, period. But that doesn't mean they're going to vote for Andy, you know. Mm-hmm. So he's trying not to anger those folks. So he just lets those 
those attacks just go without saying anything. And, and he doesn't say anything about Donald Trump either because uh, his advisor says, oh, you know, God, help, no, don't mention Donald Trump. You know, it doesn't matter what happens. Don't mention Donald Trump because you're going to have all these Donald Trump supporters that can vote for you that don't like Bevin. Well, you know what? At the end of the day, what I learned a long time ago, if somebody is a Republican, you know, 99.999% of the time they vote Republican, they're going to vote Republican. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're going to try to persuade some Republicans to vote for you because they don't like Bevin, but they like Trump, but they're going to vote for the Democrat because he doesn't say anything bad about Trump, that is just foolish. Um, it's better to be aggressive. It's better to look aggressive. It's better – in Kentucky especially, the aggressive one wins always. I think that's mm-hmm. a general rule in politics anyway, but in Kentucky, it's very much that way, and Bevin is the aggressive one. Uh, Andy Bashir is trying to be Mr. Nice Guy in, in, in playing that part uh, to, to, the, to the bad guy that he's running against. That ain't going to work. And and so he's, he's boxed himself into a situation where he's the nice guy, Bevin's the bad guy, Bevin's beating the shit out of him on, the, on these things, and he, you're not defending yourself because you want to be the nice guy. It's crazy. So that, that's, that's why Bevin is caught up. It had nothing, in my opinion, at all to do with him getting closer to, to Trump because he, he, be, he couldn't beat him more closer anyway mm-hmm. now, to begin with. Uh, almost all of the election news uh, coming out of Kentucky this year seemed to center on the governor's race, but you got other constitutional offices mm-hmm. that are also on the ballot. Do you see – a scenario where voters are going to split their vote, or are we looking at voters pretty much straight party voting this year? I think what you've seen more and more and more and more in Kentucky, kind of what you saw in the South, we're, we're always about 20 years behind on almost mm. everything um, with these voting patterns in the South, is you have far less ticket splitting than you had before. I think mm-hmm. that the attorney general's race is about the most interesting race in the country, even more interesting than the governor's race. And you have Daniel Camner and Cameron, who's from my hometown in E-Town, um, former UFL football player. That's where I work. Um, he was Mitch, he's African-American, Republican, Mitch McConnell's top lawyer for years, a young man, and he's 32, um, and uh, running against Greg Stumbo, who's, <laughs> who's one of the oldest known politicians in Kentucky, from mm-hmm. eastern Kentucky – who had been attorney general 12 years ago, who had been speaker of the House two different times in Kentucky, who was a master politician in the state house, lost his seat, uh, his House seat in 2016 during the Trump wave. Um, and you know, he, then he, he, you know, Stumbo runs in this race, and uh, Cameron's run a really good campaign, and he's had really good ads. I mean, as a Democrat, I just like, Want to throw something at the television when he runs ads about Abraham Lincoln, but because Abraham Lincoln, of course, was born in Kentucky, and um, and I think uh, Daniel has, has sort of missed the missed the uh, the lesson on what Abraham Lincoln has really really stood for. That's here and there, um, but he's run a much better campaign than Greg Stumbo. I think that uh, you know Stumbo is going to do well in Eastern Kentucky in that race, and that's going to be a close race. Uh, I think the rest of the down ballot tickets um, ticket is going to be 
you know, Republican. I think the agriculture commissioner is going to win again big. I think, you know, uh, Allison Ball, treasurer, is going to win uh, again big. I think the secretary of state race is probably the only race where I, I'm thinking that the Democrat could win, I think, for sure, regardless of what happens at the top of the ticket. Um, because you have um, Heather Fritch Henry, former Miss America, her husband's former lieutenant governor in Kentucky, but she's very popular. Um, even among a lot of Republicans, because of her uh, her issues, Miss America was better were veteran issues, and she's just beloved with a lot of veterans. Um, I've talked to a lot of veterans uh, this year. They were like, "I'm a Republican, I'm a Trump Republican, but I love Heather. You know, I love her. You know, she she's done so much, and she shows up at all these events and doesn't see the limelight when she shows up to help. And she's just very well respected in that regard. So, and she's a celebrity." Uh, which matters. So uh, I think she beats Michael Adams. I think that's not that close of a race, actually. But I think that's the only race the Democrats can look at and say we're for sure going to win that race. The Attorney General, I think, is a 50-50. I just don't know how – I just don't know how Greg Sumbo is going to do in Eastern Kentucky to uh, – if he if he does very well in Eastern Kentucky, which he should, that's where he's from, um, and – you know, I just don't know how Eastern Kentuckians are going to vote for an African American Attorney General. I just don't know. Mm-hmm. I know how Barack Obama did in the, in the Democratic primary in '08 in a lot of those counties. Uh, we got one percent. You know, to Hillary Clinton's ninety-nine percent in a lot of these counties. So I just don't know. You know, and you got to think that that Stumbo is going to do well in Louis, in Louisville area, but. Daniel Cameron, as an African-American candidate, is probably going to take away some votes too that Stumbo would normally win as a Democrat. So yeah, that, that race is very interesting. I, I'm, I can't wait to see the not just the election result but actually the breakdown countywide and precinct-wise, what that's going to look like. Governor's race, okay. I think, is going to be scratched. I think it's going to be what Democrats normally win, Democrats win, Republicans normally win, Republicans are going to win. It's just going to be the level of turnout and intensity. It's going to well, that, matter in the governor's race. That's my final question for you. What's your sense of what the turnout is going to be? Is it going to be heavy, or is it going to be light, or do we just not, not know? Yeah. A year ago, I would have told you that every Democrat with a pulse would jump out of bed on Election Day and run to the polls to vote against Matt Bevin. And, and the feeling about Matt Bevin hasn't changed. What's changed is I think the campaign we've run against him, has it been a creative campaign? Has it been a motivating campaign? And I just think that the sense of dread has come over most Democrats to say, holy crap, I can't believe this guy's probably going to win again because he, just Bevin was, is so hated. Even among most Republicans a year ago, but look, campaigns are everything. You know, it's just like next year's presidential race. You know, I'm, I think Donald Trump's going to lose no matter who we nominate. But campaigns are everything. You know, and there's a there's a there's a line of thought in in political science courses, which I think is bullshit, that says campaigns don't matter. You just look at the economic <laughs> data. It's bullshit, and I've had massive arguments about this with political scientists. No, campaigns do matter, and it's not just in the margins. Um, 
and 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 that's what it's going to come down. He's going to run the better campaign. He's going to frame the debate. He's going to put the other side on the defensive. And and what's this campaign going to be about? And unfortunately, in this race, this campaign has not been about what this governor has done bad. It's been about you know the social issues and our nominee's inability to catch that ball coming out of his head and throw it back. And you have to do that, and you can't just be mute. So all that being said, we could still win the governor's race, and uh, it's still a very, very, very close race. It, we could still win despite ourselves, and, and, and we could win despite ourselves because this governor is just – you know he says at a, at a debate the other night that people are, are committing suicide in casinos. <laughs> I mean, this is this. I mean, he's, and then he says, you know, a couple of nights later at this other debate last night, he's like, "I didn't say that." Well, of course, all the media is jumping up and down, going, "We've got you on tape saying it," you know. But I mean, this is who we're dealing with—a guy who who says that teachers coming to Frankfurt to protest is going to be children raped at home and deaths because of the protest. Now, <laughs> that's who we're dealing with. Right. So between and, now and, and the election, he could say something even dumber, and it hurt him. I don't know. So. Yeah. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to send it back to David. David. Yes. Well, Matt, we want to thank you for coming on. Before you leave, if some folks want to um, find you on social media, if you're doing any writings anywhere where people can read your analysis between now and the race, and then after the race, share that now. I said, well, you should go to Matt Wyatt um, on Facebook in Kentucky, and um, I'm the only one in Kentucky. It's Matt Wyatt, and you could you could uh, like me on there or um, Matt Wyatt yeah, KY on Twitter. All right. Well, Matt, um, good luck to you between now and the campaign. Uh, we'll be watching it and discussing it after the results. Sounds good. Hopefully, we can we can pull this out because it would be great great news for the country if we can knock off Matt Bevan. All right. Well, thanks again. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. Yes. Thank you. All right. Matt Wyatt of Kentucky, our Kentucky expert. And, of course, uh, being it's odd year election, it seems like those odd year uh, states in the south were able to discuss a little more because they're not with every other thing on the ballot uh, like some of the other states are. Um, well, we got time for maybe one more topic, and um, – Tim, in the pre-show, you kind of uh, alluded to what you were going to tell us. So you didn't. You said, I'm going to tell you later. So I think we got to discuss that, and, and let me set that up. Um, Tulsi Gabbard's really not gotten much traction in the polls. Um, she, she's made some of the debates, and, and early on, I think, um, you know, she you know, she was confident. She really didn't have much of a base still. But in the past few weeks, uh, um, you know, Hillary Clinton made a comment about her. And then, since then, she's been on this, um, how many Fox shows can I be on, and even skipping, you know, candidate forms to be on Fox News, which is really not the Democratic base. Uh, you're not going to see a lot of Democratic voters on the primetime, uh, or, you know, watching the primetime lineup on the weekdays. And then also, there's been a rumor that she may uh, run a third-party bid. Uh, Catherine, what is Tulsi Gabbard up to? Who knows? I don't even want to. I, I feel like she doesn't deserve to be, you know, a topic. 
she's what, like at less than 1% in the polls? Or 1%? Very low. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it's, it's... And, and I just think sometimes she... I think she's kind of like... I don't know. I just... I, I personally don't like her. I don't like the way she talks. I don't... I don't agree with her on a lot of things, but also I, I think her, um, I find her very inauthentic. I don't find anything authentic about her when I listen to her speak. And I, I, I don't have any idea what she's up to. She says she's not going to run as a third party, that she's a Democrat and she's not running as not a Democrat. That's what she keeps saying. I like to trust people. I like to trust a person's word. Until they prove me wrong. Yeah, and we can get into more of the analysis of that in a moment. Uh, but Tim, you said you have an idea of what she's up to. What's she up to? Mm-hmm. I believe she is trying to portray herself as the battler in the group against the system in order to stand out. The system, in this case, being the Democratic establishment, the Democratic Party, the Democratic National Committee, and most of the other Democratic candidates and most of the people who have been important in Democratic politics for the last umpteen number of years. I do not believe she is going to run third party for one reason. You got two major third parties in this country. You've got the Libertarians and the Green Party. And does anyone see Tulsi Gabbard uh, being the nominee of either one of those parties? Because she really doesn't jive with either one of them either. No, she um, doesn't. So I, she says, she said it on a podcast ju- just this week that she's going to take her campaign all the way to the Democratic Convention. Now, I don't know if that's going to do her any good because Catherine uh, made reference to her standing in the polls, which will net her a grand total of, like, no delegates to the convention. Bernie Sanders was able to go there in 2016 and, you know, raise the roof a little bit because he had about, you know, 30 to 40 percent of the delegates there, and and which earned him a prime spot at the convention, um, including on the rules committee and, and everything else. But but she's not gonna you know have anything like that. But I believe that that is exactly what she's trying to do. What do you think? Yeah, I, I tell you, I don't know what she's up to either. And being at one percent, I mean. Like, for instance, Tim Ryan, who, who I think unfortunately dropped out of the race this week, he was at 1%, but, but he had kind of a, a thesis about his campaign. He was kind of the, uh, the last Rust Belt uh, Democrat in many ways that uh, those places would lose and kind of understood those, those voters since he still represents them in Youngstown. At the same time, talked about wellness care, not just health care when you get sick, but making Americans healthy in front. I mean, those are two things he stood for. I don't know what two things Tulsi Gabbard stood for. What I know is I apparently before she got in politics, she was very right-wing on you know, choice issues, which is pretty controversial. 
to say the least, in the Democratic Party. Also, she was an early backer of Bernie Sanders, um, you know, for, for what that is. And so you're kind of like, okay, is she like the most right-wing Democrat from that early position, or is she like really left-wing Democrat because she was an early backer of Bernie Sanders, or is she just nowhere? <laughs> and I kind of mm. get the more I look at it. It may be the third one. She's kind of nowhere. It's, it's neither one of those positions really well, say anything about her. Well, well look, it, it, see, it doesn't look right now as if she's going to make the November debate. She, 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 she's got the the number of donors down, but you've got to have like four polls showing you at at least three percent to qualify for this debate. She's got like one. She's got to get out there and make herself known somehow. I think this is how she has chosen to do it, um, by, you know, trashing everybody in sight, uh, getting getting on Sean Hannity's show and uh, jumping on Hillary Clinton, the Democratic National Committee, uh, questioning the impeachment inquiry. I had a Republican friend the other day text me and say, you know, one of your candidates that I really like is Tulsi Gabbard. I thought, oh, geez. See, uh, so she, she really is trying to place herself in some sort of niche here. And, and I, I really think that's what she's trying to do. Because uh, if if this third party uh, uh, were, you you tell me, guys, where would she go to run as a third party candidate? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, she I she seemingly think... hurts Trump worse. Catherine could be. Yeah. What were you saying, oh, Catherine? Oh, I'm sorry. I was just saying that yeah, there's no third party for her to go to. Right. There's nowhere right. for her to go. Right. Yeah. So I mean, honestly, as crazy as it sounds, I don't think uh, you know Mike Pence, especially since his wife has gone on the apology tour. He's back in the good graces, but um, she might actually fit the profile for uh, Donald Trump's running mate if he were to dump Pence. He could say he was bipartisan, mm-hmm. and she'd be the Democrat that says they shouldn't impeach him. You know, she is younger and, um, you know, let's just be honest, attractive, and Donald Trump is very superficial, and that's two things he would value over political acumen. Um, You know, she did announce that she's not going to run for her House seat, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in Hawaii, which that may be because she's got some internal polls and she'd be in trouble in a primary. But uh, that would be like, you know, what's the next move if there is a next move? Maybe she's just hoping she can get a, a show on Fox. She can be the token Repu- uh, Democrat with a you know ten o'clock on Saturday night show or whatever they give to Democrats on the network. Um, well, that would that would know, be. I, I don't know. If she wasn't Catherine? trashing everyone in the Democratic Party, she might have a spot in the cabinet uh, when we win. But the way she's acting, she doesn't look. She's not winning any hearts over there. Yeah. There's one thing. Yeah, I don't think there's one thing, ahead, David, that that we got to remember now. Now, Barack Obama's campaign skillfully uncovered a wealth of small donors on the internet in 2008. The first one that do it. now everybody pretty much can do that. 
I think that explains partly why so many of these candidates that yep. are running at one in two percent in the polls are staying in because frankly they are able to get the money from small donors to fund their campaigns, not on a massive scale, but on enough of a scale to stay in the race if they want to. And somebody like her might ride this thing all the way out and get 1% or 2% in every state. But there she'd be on the news and talking and this and that and the other. And it would, you know... I, I don't know what else to say well, about I, her. I, and I just don't know. I, I mean, you know, we talked about the button and tote bag theory, but I don't really know who's buying her tote bags. Um, by the way, <laughs> I don't understand the whole tote bag thing anyway. You go to conferences and they give you those horrible things for free. Um, why somebody would want to pay for one, I don't know. Um, but, but, you know, everybody gets these bills, and how do they have money to, to, to give to you know these candidates that – they don't even seemingly sometimes like hardcore support like Tulsi Gabbard because, you know, the theory is is people are just giving, you know, 2 and $3 to everybody to expand the pie, which with 20-some-odd candidates, if you have to keep giving, my goodness, that turns into real money after a while. Um, sure does. But, yeah, there's, there's so much we can get to talk to uh, tonight. I'd love to talk about the wall in Colorado. We probably could have spent a whole hour on what does three dots mean. Um, what kind of secret <laughs> sign was that? I felt like I was watching the show Lost. Um, but they'll be next week, and no telling what um, he'll have done by then, and we can discuss that next week. Till then. Good night. Good night. Good night. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America stand?